Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent for McClatchy here in Washington. And I'm Andrea Dresch, Washington correspondent for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. This week, we're taking a look at the state of gun policy post-Parkland and, unfortunately, post-Santa Fe. A side note, we recorded this episode last Thursday as President Trump traveled to Santa Fe to visit victims of the shooting. Even the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, has proposed his own policies for gun control. The result of the roundtables and the result of our discussions with the victims has led to this. The governor's school and firearm safety action plan. And while so much of the oxygen on this subject is taken up by the NRA and big gun groups in Washington, we wanted to bring on a couple of guests this week who can help us challenge the idea that there is no middle ground to be had when it comes to gun safety. So who are those people? First, we have Ed Scruggs from Texas Gun Sense, who was in the room with Governor Abbott on some of these conversations last week. We also have Larry Keene from the National Shooting Sports Foundation, a gun trade association based in Newtown, Connecticut, location of the Sandy Hook shooting. All right, you ready? Let's do it. January 20th, the day the people became the rulers of this nation again. And our ideals and fundamental values are being attacked. Do we retreat or do we fight? I say we fight. He heard those voices that were out there that other people weren't hearing, and he just earned a mandate. It is time for Democrats to grow a backbone and get out there and fight. The American people would like to try something new. We would like to see the country go in a different direction to change the course for America. He doesn't take this presidency seriously enough. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. So our first guest is Ed Scruggs of Texas Gun Sense, a gun safety group that came on our radar after Sutherland Springs last year for taking a slightly different approach from some of the national groups. For one, they don't talk about the NRA, and for two, they're looking to work with Republicans. So this group is so different from most gun control groups. They actually got a meeting uh, with Governor Abbott of Texas last week, a very high-profile meeting in which he laid out a number of proposals to help increase school security and gun safety around the state. Ed told me after Sutherland Springs that his group is just trying to get in the door of some offices in Texas, and now that has, in some ways, come to fruition with another shooting in Texas this month in a Santa Fe high school. Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican, held a series of roundtables in Austin this month. Texas Gun Sense was the only gun safety group invited to that, and our next guest was in those meetings. Ed, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. You know, Ed, I think... I have the same question that a lot of people do when they watch the response to the the tragic shootings in Santa Fe this month and wondered why there wasn't the same kind of full-throated, activist-fueled response that we saw in the wake of Parkland. Politicians who sit in their gilded House and Senate seats funded by the NRA telling us nothing could have ever been done to prevent this. We call BS. When that happened earlier in the year, you had confrontations with Republican lawmakers that were was broadcast on CNN. Why do we have to speak out to the Capitol? Why do we have to march on Washington just to save innocent lives? You, you had a, this enormous march in Washington in response to it. It was kind of the culmination of a month of activism on this issue. And you haven't seen the same kind of response 
and Santa Fe. And, you know, my question to you is why? Well, Texas is a very different culture. And that's one reason our group, Texas Gun Sense, exists, is we felt it was important for Texans to be able to talk to other Texans about gun violence issues. But, you know, it also has something to do with where the shooting took place. Santa Fe is a smaller suburb. It has a mix of professionals and blue collar. And so you have a perhaps a broader mix of opinion there. There are students that uh, attend Santa Fe that are very active. They are involved in March for Our Lives, and they have been speaking out. They just haven't had the coverage that the students at Parkland had. Also, too, um, there are more students that are very pro-gun rights, and um, they were invited to a, a forum that the governor had last week, and so they spoke up and got a lot of coverage there. So instead of it being overwhelmingly pro-gun rights, I just think there's more of a mix of opinion there, so it doesn't stand out as much as Parkland does. Well, and Ed, you had talked about um, after Sutherland Springs in describing the group that you work with, a different approach to some of the other gun safety groups. You're really just looking to get in the door of offices with Republicans, um, maybe where some others can't. And that sort of came to fruition last week when you were the only gun group in Governor Abbott's office. As somebody who was there watching a Republican governor respond to this, has the debate changed? And were you surprised what happened in those meetings? I do believe the debate has changed, and it's really the result of all of these gun violence prevention groups on the ground here working together. Uh, We've partnered with March for Our Lives, Moms Demand Action, and we all kind of, we basically are attacking the problem from different angles. And after Parkland, for example, there was a big increase in activism within Texas. The March for Our Lives in Austin drew over 20,000 people one of the largest demonstrations in the history of the state capitol. Um, so I think those things together, along with recent events, is what inspired partly the governor to have these roundtable discussions last week. And it's probably what helped inspire us to at least get a seat at the table. Because we're Texas-specific, they were probably more likely to invite us. Um, But even during the roundtable, the governor suggested that we were representing the other groups as well. Um, So I think that's what got us into the meetings. We hadn't really, there was no gun violence prevention group that had met with a Texas governor that we've been able to find since Ann Richards was governor over 20 years ago. Maybe not coincidentally the last Democratic governor of Texas. <laughs> it had, exactly. But it had just been a one-way conversation for most of the last 20 years on how can we expand gun rights. And, you know, we've been working the last three legislative sessions, getting bills proposed, trying to get hearings. And that hadn't been done in a long, long time, even though the discussions last week didn't get into the big gun control issues per se of assault weapons or ammunition magazines or waiting periods and things like that, we at least did have a discussion. I felt the discussion was an honest discussion, at least in the session I was in. No one was shut down. The governor was genuinely, I feel, engaged. We were actually in the same room with the Texas State Rifle Association, which is the Texas branch, basically, of the NRA. That's very, very rare because they won't engage us either, and their strategy is to pretty much pretend as if we don't exist 
We couldn't do that last week. We all had to sit down and talk in one place. And so from that perspective, it was very productive, I, I felt. Ed, can you explain to the listeners exactly what it is your group would like to see happen uh, when it comes to gun laws in Texas? Well, we have a lot of holes in our background check system, as many states do. You can still purchase them privately over the Internet in many cases at gun shows, special tables at gun shows without background checks. So it's extraordinarily easy for someone with a criminal history, a mental illness, or domestic abuse history to get their hands on a firearm. You can contact someone on Craigslist and meet them at the Walmart parking lot and buy an AR-15 out of the trunk for cash with no ID, and that is completely legal here in Texas. And we just feel that that's just unacceptable. And polls show that the overwhelming majority of people do feel that's unacceptable. A new Queen of Piac poll out today actually shows 93% of Texans favor universal background checks or background checks on all gun buyers. So that support's very strong here. It's just the political polarization within the state around gun issues has been so strong for so long. It's difficult to have that discussion you know, at the legislature itself. I want to ask you about that because I cover a lot of federal races and a lot of Democratic candidates, including Democratic candidates who are now Democratic nominees in Texas. And, you know, I think you have seen a decided difference in their posture toward guns, particularly compared to recent election cycles, but maybe even in the wake of Parkland, where you have candidates even running in red areas who are now proposing banning certain types of assault weapons and really aggressively advocating for gun control in a way that I don't think we've seen from Democrats running in in more red districts. You know, my question for you is, do you worry that the Democratic Party becoming more aggressive on this issue is going to ultimately be counterproductive? Well, I'm not necessarily worried about it because I think really for Democratic candidates to win their primaries, I don't think they really had any choice but to go strong on guns and probably more so this year because I think support for gun restrictions is even higher amongst Democratic voters than it was before. How that plays out in the general, I'm not sure. One thing I have noticed is that the Democratic candidates that are kind of running on that platform, they're very direct, they're very specific about it, and not afraid to talk about it, whereas incumbents or some of the Republicans in some of those seats, they've been able to kind of not have to talk about it for a long, long time because they haven't been challenged. They haven't had anyone asking them to kind of defend their votes or their stances on it. And I think they'll have to do that this year because for the first time in a long time, every legislative seat in Texas is contested this year. There is a Democratic nominee. There is a challenger. And some of them are more well-funded than they've been in the past. So this will be an issue in the fall, um, whether some candidates want it to be or not. And going back to the Art of the Possible, Governor Abbott laid out his plans post-Santa Fe this week. Can you walk us through sort of what he's proposing, whether these are some surprises and, and whether you like his proposals and maybe whether any of this could be a blueprint for Washington? Yeah, when we're talking about the art of the possible, I think a lot of people here don't know about the safe storage requirements, hadn't heard of the law, didn't know there were penalties for not complying, and that was all flushed out in our roundtable discussions. So he's proposing strengthening the law, making the worst offense 
where it results in injury or death to someone else, changing that from a misdemeanor to a third-degree felony, which is long overdue. And it actually, his report presents statistics showing that states that have done that show better compliance with the law. But I think the biggest thing that he is open to doing is the establishment of a red flag law here in Texas. Florida passed one shortly after Parkland, and it wasn't a full-throated endorsement yesterday, but he is asking the legislature to, to study it and produce something in the next session. We talked about that extensively at the roundtable. He was very interested in the benefits of a red flag law, how it would work, is due process part of it, how do you protect the constitutional rights of someone involved? And his own report yesterday even concludes that red flag laws may have prevented Sutherland Springs church shooting, may have prevented Parkland. So they have concluded that there's a benefit to, the, to a law such as that. We just have to try to come up with something, a Texas version of it. And I'm convinced if, if the governor were to be firmly behind it and we get a few other key legislators, we probably could craft something and would have a shot at legislative approval. Yeah, let me let me ask you a blunt political question, because sure. we, we've mentioned already several times in the course of this interview that both sides are obviously very polarized on this issue. Uh-huh. Is there a constituency for the kind of work that you're focused on, uh, trying to find a middle ground, trying to find compromise? Because it can feel like either group wants everything or nothing and that there isn't much middle ground there. Well, I'll tell you, to be involved in this work in Texas, you have to be naturally optimistic. (laughs) I understand that. I understand. Yeah, you have to play a long, this is a long ball, kind of a long range game that we're playing. You know, our legislature only meets every other year. And we hadn't had anyone playing the game at all in Texas for so many years. There's a lot of misconceptions out there. People will quickly claim you're trying to take our guns or this is some type of a gun grab. And you have to explain that it's not. You would still have your rights, et cetera, et cetera. The automatic constituency is small. But a lot of those people realize that if we're ever going to get out of the pathway that we're on, which is certainly not working, um, we have to be able to have an adult conversation on this and a realistic political conversation and, uh, you know, build from there. And that's kind of been our philosophy all along, is let's find where the common ground is and establish that common ground and go from there. You know, hopefully we're just going to continue on that path. Ed, do you, do you feel like you're on an island? There aren't a lot of groups that would look for middle ground in all of our politics right now. I think it's, you know, sometimes it's more just kind of the method of presentation sometimes. Again, Texas is different culturally, and so people, I think a lot of times they're willing to have a conversation about this, but they have to go about it a certain way. So we're, we're trying to build a bridge over a very wide canyon here, but you can see how it's beginning to work. If you can just get everyone to sit down at the same table and have the conversation I think it works. But that's probably the biggest part of the battle is just getting everyone together. And can you just uh, recap for us of the things that Governor Abbott is proposing? Are those things he can do himself or does Texas have to wait until the next legislative session? Many of them do require additional legislative action, appropriation of funds, many of the school safety issues, 
psychiatric counseling in the schools require the appropriation of funding, although they do have some grant funding available. The governor has some discretionary funds in some departments, so they can get started on some of that. The Safe Storage Gun Safety Public Education Program, they have money within other departments where they can get started on that right away, which I would hope that they would do that immediately. The toughening of the gun storage laws, the law about requiring the reporting of stolen weapons, that would require legislative action. So one of the debates we're having here is, do we want to call a special session or wait until the regular legislative session in January? The governor said yesterday he's open to a special session if people can come together on certain key policy points and are prepared to get in and act. But I think um, the jury is still out as to whether we'll get a special session. When it comes to what Governor Abbott is proposing, what are the the new proposed policies? Well, the new proposed policies are uh, there's a heavy emphasis on school safety, hardening school sites. And when you say hardening, you mean basically making schools safer. Yeah, that's the that's the idea anyway. And and a real famous comment, well, somewhat infamous comment, the lieutenant governor, who is a very pro-gun rights politician, uh, the day of Santa Fe said he wanted to limit every school to just one entrance and exit. We need to get down to one or two entrances into our schools. You have the necessary exits for fire, of course, but we have to funnel our students uh, into our schools so we can put eyes on them. He got a lot of flack for that. He did have a point, though, however, in that most schools, such as I have two teenage boys in high school, their school was 40 years old. It was not designed for this kind of safety threat. It has 17 different entrances and portable buildings scattered all out on the periphery of the campus. That's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to secure. To do what some would like to see would take probably a few billion dollars in appropriations to make all the changes you would need. And the, the, the state legislature has just not been willing to allocate that kind of money for the last decade or so, and I don't necessarily see that changing. We will definitely be taking some some steps to increase uh, safety or the hardening of schools, but probably not as far as some people would like. Well, Ed, y'all really are far out there if you're defending Dan Patrick among the gun groups. <laughs> well, and I want to say, you know, defending Dan Patrick, it's he does have a point. I think his his where his problem came in was it was presented as the only real solution or the only way to prevent a school shooting from reoccurring. And that's just absolutely not true. Well, Ed, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Anytime. So, Andrea, that was certainly a perspective you don't hear a lot about inside the bubble. Beyond the bubble, would you say? I think it was beyond the bubble. And I think our next guest, he lives inside the bubble, but maybe his his perspective is more from outside the bubble. Why don't you tell us who it is? So our next guest is also working to curb gun violence, but he is also a card-carrying member of the gun lobby. Larry Keene is vice president of the National Shooting Sports Foundation, a trade association for gun manufacturers. The NSSF doesn't support most of the measures backed by the gun control groups or many Democrats. But last year, they did help shepherd a bill through Congress aimed at strengthening the national background check system, which screens prospective gun purchasers for criminal records that would disqualify them from owning a gun. Larry, thanks for coming on the show. Happy to do it. Larry, tell us a little bit about how and why the firearms industry is a part of this discussion. 
after the tragedy in Newtown, which again is where we happen to be headquartered and have been for many decades, uh, we we saw that part of the problem is that records are not in the background check system. And any database is only as good as the records that are in it. So we, the industry, through the National Shooting Sports Foundation, launched the Fix Nix initiative, and we successfully changed the law in 16 states in about three or four years and increased the number of disqualifying mental health records, which was the primary record missing from the database, uh, by 200%. It went from like one point um, five million to about uh, almost five million uh, records put into the into the next database. So we think to answer your question, there is common ground, uh, and and we think the fix next legislation is a good example of that. And the fix next bill that was like a, a unicorn of sorts on Capitol Hill that had the support of the NRA and also like the the Brady Group and some of the gun safety groups. Did those groups ever sit down in the same room at the same time to talk about this? Well, if they did, they didn't invite us, so not, not to my knowledge. But again, uh, you know, we're very pleased that there was the, the fix-nix legislation actually ended up with more Democrat co-sponsors. You know, and I think it is a really good example of where there is more that unites us than divides us, and that if people would step away from the overheated rhetoric and have a discussion, an honest, respectful discussion. People can have differing opinions, um, but because you don't agree with somebody's opinion does not mean you're a terrible person, doesn't mean you're a terrorist organization and and things like this. And so, you know, that fixed next legislation, the lead co-sponsor was Senator Murphy, who is one of the most anti-Second Amendment gun control senators uh, in the Senate. So it does demonstrate that there can be compromise that there can be you know progress and and that people can come together and agree on things if we focus on what we can agree upon and not what divides us we'd we'd get a lot more done so what would be the next thing that you think both sides can agree upon well i'm you know the mansion to me legislation from a couple of years ago uh, was a big problem for the industry because it prioritized background checks at gun shows and would have essentially shut down licensed retailers, brick and mortar stores that we represent on weekends to prioritize checks from back uh, background checks from gun shows over those from brick and mortar licensed retailers. That you know from the industry's point of view is simply not something we could agree to. But I don't see. Um, you know, any legislation passing Congress now that would ban uh, modern sporting rifles, for example. Hey, Larry, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, it's a pleasure to spend time with you. That's good. Okay, it is time for everyone's favorite segment of the show, the lightning round. Andrea, you're up first. All right. I'd like to use mine on someone Alex and I both used to cover, former Alaska Senator Mark Bagich, a Democrat who, uh, for those keeping track, is still living in the bubble right now, but has now suggested he could consider a run for governor in Alaska. Some shaky politics there. They have an independent governor right now. That this is something of a biannual tradition, it seems like, for Mark Begich. I remember writing in 2016 how he was considering a last-minute run for Senate in Alaska. He didn't end up running there. I somehow have a little skepticism that he's going to end up running in this race either. Doesn't stop us from writing about him. <laughs> Absolutely. Always if more Mark content. If Mark Begich is getting involved, then... The stories will soon follow. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, Mine is the California primaries. You have heard us talk about those races on the show. Well, the races are 
finally here on June 5th. Uh, you might, they might have even finished by the time you listen to this. There are three races, I repeat, three races where Democrats are in danger of being locked out of the general election because of California's wonky top two system. California 38, California 48, and California 49. They're all in Orange County, as a matter of fact. Those are the three races that Democrats in Washington are most worried about. And if any one of them doesn't have a Democratic nominee for the fall, it will be a major blow to the party's chances of retaking the House this fall. Okay, Andrea, it's been great doing this with you again. Thanks, Alex. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith. And thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyondthebubblepod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk Talk to you you next week. week.